morning. I don't know about you guys, but there is something about a book study that really gets me excited. And we are jumping back into Mark today. Uh, about a year ago, we started the book of Mark, uh, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, and uh, went through it for about nine months, taking a little break here and there, but we've had a three-month break uh, for summer. You know, people are out of town, kids are uh, out of school, people are going on vacation, all those types of things, and I thought, well, you know, let's get us something else to get us through uh, the summer, but today we're jumping back into the book of Mark. We've got a pretty big passage, as you guys know, as you guys heard as we read the scripture today. Um, so without further ado, I think, uh, let, me, let me get you guys caught up to where we are, what has set the context as quickly as I possibly can. Um, last we saw Jesus, he was making his way to Jerusalem, and in doing so, he had passed through the town of Jericho, but Mark didn't even really keep us there for an entire breath. Mark was like, they went into Jericho, and boom, they were leaving Jericho, and it was like as quick as that. He moved quickly to show us that Jesus had found the person who might be looked at as the ultimate disciple, the consummate disciple, the guy who fits the mold of a disciple. And I'm talking about Bartimaeus. Um, Of course, if you know anything about Bartimaeus, he was blind, uh, but he hadn't been blind since birth. Rather, he's, he's asking Jesus to restore his vision. So we know that at some point he was able to see, but he lost his vision at some point in life, and he asks Jesus to have it back. And so as, as Jesus is passing by, just, just to back up a second, as Jesus is passing by, Bartimaeus screams out for Jesus to have mercy on him in the midst of, of the crowd. All these people are there, and they're, they're following Jesus, and they're listening to Jesus, and Bartimaeus screams out. And at first the people are like, hey, dude, shut up. We're, we're trying to listen over here. And Jesus summons him, and they're like, oh, dude, come on over here and, and meet Jesus. So all, all of a sudden they're his friends, and so Bartimaeus immediately leaps up and throws his cloak off. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I was a blind person, it would be really, really hard to throw away the one and only thing that you have. Because where did it go? How is he going to find it? How is he going to find that cloak? He knows that Jesus is going to heal him. What we see is Bartimaeus is a man of exceptional faith, exceptional faith, and you contrast that with the rich young property owner who went away sad when he was told that if he wants to follow Jesus, he needs to sell everything that he owns and give uh, give the proceeds to the poor if he wants to follow Jesus. And he goes away sad. Bartimaeus, when he's given the opportunity to throw everything away, he does it. He doesn't even need to be asked. He just does it out of this great faith. And so as this part of the story concluded, the people were praising God for the miracle of Bartimaeus receiving his sight as he followed Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And so everything's looking good, right? I mean, this is like a high point in Jesus' ministry. The multitudes are following him. They're listening to him. Jesus has just found this guy who is like the consummate disciple. Everything is looking great. And Jesus is heading to Jerusalem where there's going to be a crowd of people awaiting him. Um, And by the way, there is a major, major prophecy about that, which we'll cover briefly in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at what Mark tells us as we see the triumphal entry of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords into Israel's most beloved city. We pick it up in Mark chapter 11, and we'll cover verses 1 through 7 to start. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, 
and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Now, without going into too many details just yet, it's important that we make note of the three places that Mark is telling us that Jesus is going into, because there are more towns there than just Jerusalem, Bethphage, and and Bethany. There are a lot of towns and villages surrounding uh, Jerusalem, but there must be something significant about these three locations if Mark is going to tell us, and we're going to see what those reasons are before we're finished with uh, with this study today, this portion of Mark's book. Now, while there aren't a lot of of details or background information provided for us here about uh, exactly how this was all set up, it's pretty obvious, at least to me it seems obvious, that the owner of this colt was expecting someone to show up to take the colt. So Jesus sends two of his disciples to retrieve the colt. And just as a side note, by the way, why did he send two? This is is a one-person job. This is something that one person could very easily do, but Jesus sends two of them. Why do you think he did that? I'd say, you know, I think it's probably a way of showing us that the kingdom of God is never meant to be experienced in isolation or in a vacuum. It's meant to be experienced in the context of a community, even if that's just one other person that's holding you accountable. Just one other person. The kingdom of God is meant to be experienced as a community. Now, we should recognize the fact that Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem, the religious capital of Israel, is the fulfillment of a very specific prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt the foal of a donkey. So this is the fulfillment of a very specific prophecy. This has to happen. And so it's happening. It's got to happen. But we should also note that Jesus made a very specific clarification when he asked for this cult. It's got to be a cult upon which nobody has ever ridden before. Nobody has ever sat on this cult. Why is that significant? I'd say that there are at least two reasons. First, it's significant because a cult that has never had anyone on their back, a cult that's never had any kind of training in terms of carrying or transporting people, is going to be a little bit wild. And there's a really good chance that they're going to buck off the first person or the first thing that gets put on their back. So the fact that Jesus is able to sit on this donkey, this, uh, this colt, without it bucking him off, is something of a miracle. I mean, it it could happen, but the fact that this thing is under control shows that Jesus has control when he wants to have control. But most importantly, uh, I think the reason that it has to be a cult that nobody has ever sat on before is because only an animal that has not been used for ordinary purposes is suitable for divine and sacred purposes. 
Only an animal that's not been used for ordinary purposes is suitable for sacred purposes. And this is moving toward a, an extremely sacred moment. And thus, only an unused, untrained cult was appropriate for the moment, or for the occasion. So let's continue. Verses 8 to 10. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who, who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Obviously, these people are seeing this as a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Uh, and we'll get into that another time. But this is, they see this as the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to David a long, long time ago. But what we see here is that there are multitudes of people waiting for Jesus, waiting for this moment, waiting for his arrival outside of the city of Jerusalem. Because this is a really, really significant day. It's a very special day. This is the fulfillment of another very specific, uh, I'd say more impressive uh, prophecy. Perhaps, possibly, this is the greatest fulfillment in uh, in all of Scripture of any prophecy. This one is incredibly precise. Let me explain to you guys, uh, precision. If I tell you, that, you guys that I'm going to drop this pen onto this desk, how many of you guys would be impressed if I did it? You wouldn't be, right? Okay, so let's say I'm standing on the roof, and I say I'm going to drop this pen on this desk. How many of you guys would be impressed? Okay, how, how about if I am three or four miles up in the sky, and I say I'm going to drop this pen on this desk? How many of you guys would be impressed? Okay, that would be pretty impressive. So the greater the distance, the more impressive it is, and that's exactly what's going on here. Now, to understand why there's such a heightened sense of expectation on this specific day, we have to understand a prophecy that's found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And this is something that happened about 500 years prior to this very day, prior to this scene that we're uh, looking at today, when an angel, Gabriel, had come to Daniel and told him that God had determined a specific amount of time, 70 weeks, and if you do the math, 70 weeks is actually, uh, each week is, um, is seven years, so it actually comes out to be 490 years. So God has determined 490 years for, Asia, for Israel as a nation to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And the angel will go on to tell Daniel that there would be a total of 69 weeks, or 483 years, between the time that Jerusalem begins to be rebuilt and the day that the Messiah walks into Jerusalem. Now, Scripture actually tells us uh, exactly when Jerusalem began to be rebuilt. Uh, in the second chapter of Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes issues the decree, unbeknownst to him, he issues the decree and sets the, the prophecy timer in motion. He sets the decree and he says, Nehemiah, go ahead and go to Jerusalem and start rebuilding it. Start rebuilding it. And so the, the countdown clock was set into motion. Uh, and so 483 years exactly to that day, the Messiah is supposed to walk into Jerusalem. Now, when regions of ancient Babylon and Persia were unearthed by archaeologists, what they found is the exact date that this edict was given. They know the exact date 
that King Artaxerxes said, Nehemiah, go ahead and go build that city. It was March 15th, 445 B.C. And when you calculate how many days that is, according to the Jewish calendar, which has uh, 30 days per month, by the way, unlike our calendar, you'll find that there would be 173,880 days, which would pass between the issuing of this decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the Messiah's entry. And when you count all those days... I don't, I don't know whose job that was. I, I feel sorry for them. But when you count all those days, you find that the exact date of the Messiah's triumphal entry is going to be April 6th, 32 AD. April 6th, 32 AD. And modern historians know. You can look at the Jewish calendar and know that that was the exact date that Jesus did enter into Jerusalem. That was the, the first day of the week leading into the Passover week in 32 AD. So Jesus fulfilled this incredible prophecy 500 years before. God had said, this is when the Messiah is going to come in. Over 100,000 days later. Now you want to talk about impressive. Uh, I think that's more impressive than uh, being a few miles up and dropping a pen on on a desk, in, in my opinion. So here comes the Messiah. Here he comes, just like he was promised. Right on time, 173,880 days after the order was given to rebuild Jerusalem. You think people were counting? Yeah, they, they, they actually were. There, there are people who have shown up and they're expecting Jesus to be there on this day. So somebody was actually counting, at least some of the people were counting the days. And by the way, our history books don't tell us about anybody else who came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey that day. So he's the only one. It's only him. And you know, this is, this is such a beautiful scene. I mean, uh, when you watch movies where they, where they show Jesus riding into Jerusalem, it's such a beautiful scene. There's this celebration going on and Jesus is all smiling as he rides into the city and you know, the people are worshiping him and they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But honestly, I'm not sure that they were really thinking about what they were saying. I'm not sure that they were... Uh, they were aware of exactly what the implications were. Because what we're going to see is that there are some people who are excited about Jesus' entry into the city. Some people who are excited about Jesus' entry into the city, but who will be standing by Jesus' side by the end of the week. Who's going to be with Jesus by the end of the week? Nobody. Not a single one of these people who is celebrating his entry is going to stand by his side. Not even one. So do they really understand what's going on? I don't think so. Remember, this is, this is Passover week in this scene. This is Passover week. And so the city is bursting at the seams with tourism, with tourists who have come in from all over the place, regions from around, uh, you know, you want to talk about walking distance. These guys would ride for weeks to get there and walk for weeks to get there. They've come to observe the holiday feasts and the celebrations. But what this group of people doesn't understand yet and what apparently nobody really understands yet is where Jesus' kinship is going to lead him to the cross. See, these people who are celebrating and worshiping Jesus because they think that he's about to liberate them from Roman oppression and occupation, they're worshiping Jesus. They're celebrating Jesus for all of the wrong reasons for all the wrong reasons. He's coming in to do something way more impressive than defeat the Romans. These people are worshiping and celebrating the Savior whom they'll either abandon or turn against within just a few short days. 
Now, there's a very interesting detail that only Luke includes in his account of what's going on here. And this might change your perception of Jesus coming in all smiling and all celebrating. We read in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. When he, Jesus, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. They don't put this in the movies for some reason. In the midst of all this celebrating, Jesus is not all smiles. He's weeping. And he's not weeping tears of joy. No, this is, these are tears of deep, penetrating, heartbreaking sadness. Jerusalem had almost 500 years to prepare for this inspection, to prepare for Jesus to come in. And Jerusalem, by and large, is oblivious. Yeah, a few people showed up to welcome him. A few people welcomed him. But what should have been this intensely glorious moment in the life and the ministry of Jesus turns out to be a situation in which he's essentially like a groom who gets stood up at the altar. Now, I've been to quite a few weddings. I've never seen somebody get stood up at the altar. But the very thought of somebody being stood up at the altar makes me uneasy, kind of breaks my heart for that person. If you can imagine that happening, they have it in movies. I think it probably happens more in movies than it does in real life. But, uh, you know, there was the case of the woman a few years ago who just up and disappeared, and people were saying, oh, where is she? Well, she, she decided she didn't want to get married after all. So here's Jesus, like a groom who's been stood up at the altar. And his response is not smiles. And his response is not just to weep, but to prophesy over the city. He foretells of the day when Jerusalem's enemies will trample the city of Jerusalem, which, of course, came to pass just less than 40 years after uh, this very day uh, when the Roman Empire came in and in an attempt to gather all of the gold from within the city, they were instructed to pry apart every stone within the city. The prophecy was fulfilled. Now, I think, by the way, I think it's important that we note that Jesus does not cause Jerusalem to be trampled. He's not punishing Jerusalem by saying, well, I'm going to send your enemies in uh, to get you guys for this. Rather, what we need to understand is that because Jerusalem has rejected God's only begotten son, God now will remove his hedge of protection from around the city of Jerusalem. And they will be trampled. And Jesus says, it's because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The next verse reveals the purpose of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Verse 11, Mark chapter 11, verse 11. We read, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He comes in and he inspects. He's just looking around. And the inspection date was set. The people had 500 years to prepare, and nobody 
Not one person in the city was really prepared. Not one was ready. This this triumphal scene takes place outside of the city gates, but within the city, man, it is just business as usual. As far as everybody in the city is concerned, it's another day, another dollar. Just, Just another day as far as they're concerned. But how often does the same thing happen with us? You know, Jesus told his followers, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And sometimes even when God is in our midst trying to get our attention, we're all too busy to even stop and take notice. We make ourselves so busy doing things that really don't matter in the long run that we miss when God comes to inspect our hearts. Have you ever been to a DUI checkpoint? Those are kind of weird, uh, you know, a DUI inspection point. You don't see them all the time here, but when I was in Vegas, uh, I, saw, I saw quite a few of them. Uh, didn't always, you know, go through them. I didn't always, it wasn't always on the street that I was on. Uh, more often it was streets that I could have turned onto because they try to make it very um, unpredictable. They put it in a place where you don't really predict it. If you were to turn, boom, you'd be right there. So I've been caught in, uh, in two DUI checkpoints, and by the way, I, I passed with flying colors. Thank you very much. Uh, no, problem, uh, no problems there. But yeah, it's amazing what a surprise they are. You never expect them. But I guess that's the point. You're not supposed to expect it. They've got guys who are looking out for people who see the DUI checkpoint and turn around uh, to go a different way, and and they've got guys who are ready to go after those people. But the whole point is that you have to be prepared. You should always be prepared when you're driving for a DUI inspection point. And you know what? That's the way we should live our lives as well. That's the way we should live our lives as well, prepared for God's inspection points because we don't know when they're coming. All of us are going to have to give an account for our entire lives to God someday, and we don't know exactly when that is. You know, somebody in in the distance could shoot a gun, and it could come through these walls, and it could kill me in three minutes. I better be ready, because we don't know when we're going. That's the point. You don't know when it's coming, so be ready. But here's Jerusalem. They should have been ready. Well, it's late. Uh, Mark tells us that it's late, and Jesus is angry. Jesus is brokenhearted. He's he's hurt. And so Mark tells us that he leaves for Bethany. Now, what's the significance of Bethany? Why why does Mark tell us about Bethany? I'm not exactly sure why uh, Mark tells us about Bethany, because he doesn't tell us what happens in Bethany. But we do know that Jesus has some friends in Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha live. And John tells us that Jesus visits them on his last week, the last week leading up to his crucifixion. It's also where Lazarus lived while he was alive. And it's in Bethany that Jesus performs the final miracle of his ministry before the crucifixion against the final enemy, death. So when he comes to Bethany, we know that Mary and Martha tell Jesus that Lazarus has died, and so Jesus goes to the tomb site, and he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And every time I read that, I'm reminded of uh, what a, a famous commentator said. He said, it's a good thing that he said Lazarus, that he was specific and said Lazarus, because if he didn't, you'd have a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Everybody would have risen from the grave. Jesus demonstrated in the week follow, uh, leading up to the crucifixion that he has power over death. 
Mark doesn't tell us about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but we should know that that's going to happen in the next few days. But for now, Jesus has come to inspect the heart of Jerusalem, and he finds her heart to be distant, cold, and we know exactly what he saw. He saw greed in the temple. He saw greed. He saw religiosity disguised as devotion to God. He saw commerce. He saw hypocrisy. Mark tells us that he looked around at everything, and yet he didn't mutter a word. He's just looking around without saying anything. It's an inspection of the heart, and Jerusalem has failed in what should have been her most glorious hour, 500 years to prepare. Since it's late, Jesus simply heads off for Bethany. What we find next, however, is that Jesus is not done with Jerusalem, not by a long shot. Let's continue in verses 12 to 14. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Jesus became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Now, of course, this is all symbolic. That's not to say that it didn't literally happen. It literally did happen. It really actually did happen. But it pointed to something else. It was, it was meant to say something else, something figurative, something symbolic. The actions of Jesus here are to give a much bigger message than simply cursing a, a, a you know, piece of wood that doesn't have uh, any, any uh, fruit coming from its leaves. But this is the only time in the whole book of Mark that Jesus offers a word of condemnation, or even something remotely close to a word of condemnation. Why would Jesus do that here and now? And why to a fig tree? Well, you see, figs were a very common source of uh, you know, cheap and, and readily available food in the first century in this region. In the, month, in, in the month of March, what happens is fig trees have these small buds that look similar to figs. You might call them pre-figs. They are edible, but they're not exactly a delicacy. Uh, They turn from green to yellow as the leaves begin growing out, but they're dry on the inside. They're edible, but that doesn't sound very good. Having having a fruit that uh, has no juice in it just sounds kind of nasty. Probably a lot like eating dirt. You you can eat dirt and get away with it. It's not going to kill you, but it's kind of nasty. And that's what these pre-figs are like. But see, in May these prefigs would fall off and be replaced by normal, edible, juicy figs. But this is the month of April. When when this is happening, this is the beginning of the month of April, when this is all happening. And there aren't any prefigs. There aren't any of these figs that are precursors to the figs that are going to come out in May, which meant that when May rolled around, there would be no regular figs either. There would be no regular figs. No fruit is on the way. Uh, How much does that sound like Jerusalem? How much does that sound like Jerusalem? It sounds like it's time to be showing some fruit. And from a distance, it looks like, wow, they they should have a lot of fruit. But upon inspection, upon closer inspection, upon looking at the heart, nothing. Nothing. No fruit. And it's not only obvious that there's no fruit in Jerusalem, but there's no indication that there's any on the way either. In fact, it's obvious that there's going to be none. There's not going to be any. 
See, Jesus didn't curse the fig tree because he was uh, hungry and you know, irritable because he wasn't able to get some food from it. That's not why Jesus cursed the fig tree. Instead, we need to understand this as a parable that gets acted out. It's, it's symbolic. The irony here is that, remember, this is near the region of Bethphage. And uh, the irony is because the, the name Bethphage literally means the house of green figs. The house of unripe figs. And it's ironic that in a region known for its green figs, figs that nobody can eat, Jesus finds none on this tree. It's like calling a building a church. And yet, get, upon inspection, uh, you, know, you, you would expect to find devotion to God inside, but instead what you find is devotion to man. You find things, you find a really expensive setup. You find that this church is doing all kinds of things that make church really, really fun. But they're not teaching the message of faith faithfully. They're not doing what a church is supposed to be doing. Their praises are nothing more than lip service. And where's the fruit in a church like that? My first guess would be behind the pulpit. But that's just me. In a place that fits that description, my first guess would be, yeah, look behind the pulpit because something isn't going right there. Something isn't quite right. So here's this fig tree that looks like it's healthy. But upon closer inspection, it was not healthy. It was anything but healthy. And of course, the fig tree symbolizes Jerusalem and all of Israel. And we know that because of what comes next, verses 15 and 16. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. We need to understand that this is not the first time this has happened. This isn't the first time that Jesus has come in and cleared out the temple. John tells us that Jesus also cleared out the temple at the beginning of his ministry, which was approximately three years earlier. But they didn't learn anything the first time, and so here's Jesus cleaning it out again, doing the same thing again. And what we see is that once again, just like they had three years ago, they have commercialized, they have corrupted the whole process, this whole process of sacrifice. See, tourists were in town buying animals to sacrifice, thinking that their animals were going to get them straight with God, thinking that killing these animals were going to get them straight with God, at least until the next year, when they could come back and do it all again. And the locals were just taking advantage of a need, of a want. The locals are stocked up with all kinds of animals. They're, they're charging exorbitant amounts of money as a way of profiting from these animals. The money changers are making a ton of money and exchanging money because it has to be local currency. And so they've got these, these prices that are outrageous. And what's happening is there are all these people who are profiting off of the system that God put into place. And Jesus drives them all out of the temple. That's the first thing he did. And usually that's the thing that people remember that Jesus did. But then he does something that's even bigger and more significant than clearing out the temple. Jesus is about to do something that is way bigger than clearing out the temple. And this is something that people tend to forget. He won't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He won't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now, if you read through the books of Leviticus and Numbers... You might see that there are all these rituals that have been uh, set forth by God. And in these rituals, there's a lot of walking around, 
carrying things involved. The priests had to walk the animals into the sanctuary where they would slay the animal as a sacrifice. The priests were to catch the blood of the sacrificed animal in this, in this, um, in this cup or this basin. And then they were supposed to carry that basin into the holy place where they would sprinkle the blood on the altar of incense. And then the priests were supposed to walk back and burn the sacrificed animals and carry the body of the animal back out again. Walking and carrying was a huge, you couldn't do the sacrifices. You couldn't do any of this stuff without carrying stuff from one side to the other. And so throughout the day, you know, these priests were getting their exercise. You know, they're doing a lot of walking. They're doing a lot of carrying as a means of fulfilling these rituals. And so Jesus has stepped in and he's cleared out the temple. that's, That's pretty big. That's pretty significant. But now he's forbidding anyone to carry anything through the temple. Upon inspecting this process, which the people thought cleansed them of unrighteousness, all Jesus finds is filth. And so he rejects it. He rejects their, fa- their sacrifices, and he brings it to an end. He rejects their worship. They'd missed the whole point of all of this. They'd missed the whole point because they lacked faith. None of it was being done in faith. It was all being done like clockwork, like this is just what we do. It's all a ritual. But their hearts were distant from it. They had missed the thing that God had wanted to instill in them. Faith. Faith. It's absent. And so right here, right in front of everyone, right where everyone can see, right where everyone can hear, Jesus lets them know that their sacrifices hold no value with him. And this is how the Lord works in our lives too, by the way. He finds us dying in our sins. And he cleans us out. And our body becomes his temple. And over time, we corrupt that temple again. And so he's got to come in and he'll clean it out again. Sometimes he does it gently. Sometimes he does it like a lion. Sometimes it's fierce. Sometimes it's through experiences. Sometimes it's through circumstances. But we know that God will discipline his sons. Because we're inclined to go back to those old habits, those old things that we, that we used to do, that we shouldn't be doing anymore. And Jesus will come in and clean out his temple from time to time. We don't know when it's coming, but we want to be ready for it. The Bible teaches that our bodies are a temple. And what we see here is that Jesus takes the cleanliness and the purity of his temple really, really seriously. And so the city of Jerusalem, the religious and the political center of Israel, was nothing more than a barren fruit tree. Jerusalem looked good on the surface. They looked good from a distance. But if you were hungry, you were going to be unsatisfied if you went to Jerusalem. All they had to offer was false hope, ritual, devotion for pretends, but not legit. No faith. So while he has their attention, Jesus breaks his silence. We continue in verses 17 and 18. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. What a great opportunity to teach, man. He's got people's attention captured. He's got a captured audience. 
And, you know, in fact, I imagine that as people outside of the temple heard the commotion that was going on in there, they gathered to see what was going on just in time to hear Jesus give an explanation for his actions. They've made what was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations into a den of robbers. They're there to profit. They're not there to worship. They're not there to sacrifice. They're not there out of love or devotion to God. They're there out of love and devotion to self-righteousness, out of love and devotion to money. But it's not out of faith. And let's not overlook the fact that this teaching caused the audience, says all the people who were there, were astonished. Maybe, maybe it broke through to some of them. Maybe his teaching made sense and spurred them to legitimate faith. But this was undoubtedly the final straw as far as the chief priests and the scribes were concerned. And this was the last act. This was the act which was going to set the rest of the week in motion. The week which would see Jesus betrayed, unjustly arrested, tried, beaten, and publicly executed. This is what sets it all in motion. Apparently, Jesus spent hours teaching in the temple. The next thing that Mark tells us, verses 19 to 22, is when evening came, they would go out of the city. What happened between uh, the time that Jesus was teaching in the evening? I'd assume he kept on teaching. So when evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. Peter. And Jesus answered, saying to him, have faith in God. So now we're in day three, since Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The day after Jesus had cursed the fig tree. They walked by it again, only to notice that it was withered, it was dead from the roots up. It wasn't just cursed, it was dead. Death was its curse. If the root lives... There's still hope, right? There's still hope that you know, some part of, the, of, the, of the, the tree can come back to life. But if a tree is dead from the roots up, it is gone. It's not coming back. And see, when we read all of this in its context, we see that Jesus is teaching us how not to live a life of being cursed. How not to be cursed. Why was the nation of Israel cursed? Because it had lost its faith in God. Why? Why is he telling them? Why is he telling them, have faith in God? You know, Peter makes this stupid observation like he always does. Hey, Jesus, the tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus' response to that is, he starts it off with, have faith in God. Why does he say that, Seth? Why does he say that? So the same thing doesn't happen to them. So that they don't get cursed too. You see, the lesson here is that empty processes, hypocritical performances, and meaningless rituals, which are used as a substitute a cheap substitute for real, bona fide faith, lead to being cursed. They lead to death. Jerusalem had replaced faith with all of these counterfeits, with all of these cheap substitutes. And the result was that the life of God that was in them had withered up and died. So when Jesus says, have faith in God, he's telling us that that's the way to experience God's blessing. That's the way to avoid the curse. Have faith in God. When either a nation or an individual rejects legitimate faith in God as their source of life, this is what 
happens. Israel, like this tree, had been cursed, and the only way to avoid being cursed as well was to have faith in God. There are consequences for not having faith in God. Having faith in God is the one and only way to avoid the curse of death, that being eternal separation from God. And so Jesus ends this passage by teaching something that's, for a lot of people, really, really confusing. And and I'll say that if I didn't read this in context, I'd be confused by it too. But it's the context that always clarifies for us. So uh, after he says, have faith in God, Jesus immediately continues by saying here in verses 23 to 25, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Yeah, very, very rarely do we see people quote this passage, especially prosperity teachers, word of faith teachers. Very rarely do we see people quote this in context. We need to see how this ties into everything that's just happened. Do not isolate this text because when you do, you know what you get? You get Yoda. Use the force, Luke. You know, move something without touching it. And you've got people out there who believe that they can do that. That's sorcery. That's witchcraft. That is not what Jesus is saying here. And you know what people often miss here is that this is not some secret formula for how to throw a mountain into the sea because I don't care how great your faith is. This is not Star Wars and you do not have the force, Luke. No, what Jesus is telling us here is that he understands that sometimes having faith in God seems impossible. It's so difficult sometimes. It's not always easy. There will be obstacles, mountains, if you will, which make it seem like the odds are just incredibly stacked against you. And you'll be crying out to God, and you're not going to see him answer on the surface. You're not going to see it. And so what's going to happen is, oh, you're going to lose faith in God. You're going to get mad. You're going to get frustrated. God, where are you? You're you're supposed to be working things out for the good of those who love you. And Hey, I I love you, so why isn't this happening? See, Israel hadn't heard from God for about 400 years. God had been silent for hundreds of years. And they're wondering, why does God seem so silent? Can you relate? I think we've all been through seasons like that, where God seems incredibly silent. God, where are you? We've all been through that. Israel was under Roman tyranny. Sometimes we feel like we're being run by a bunch of tyrants too, whether you're a kid with with parents who seem like tyrants or whether you're talking about our government. Sometimes we feel the same way. And it's easy to take these mountains in life and blame them for lack of faith in God. But Jesus is saying that legitimate faith, even a little bit of it, even a little bit of legitimate faith will render any obstacles to your faith obsolete and irrelevant. And so Jesus tells us right here what one of the greatest obstacles known to man is when it comes to faith. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Anger or resentment towards someone. Anyone. Not necessarily God. Anyone. Bitterness, anger, and resentment are what turn molehills 
as obstacles to our faith into mountains. Because it demonstrates a pride that refuses to do what God has asked us to do. It refuses to conform to what God does. He chooses to forgive. And when we refuse, it's only because we're saying in our hearts, man, I've got a better way. I've got a better way, God. And so, of course, that becomes an obstacle to faith. And when that pride grows into the size of a mountain, our faith in God is very, very easily hindered. Pride is the one and only reason that anyone refuses to forgive. If you're praying to God with wrath, vengeance, revenge in your heart and your mind towards someone, you're not experiencing the life that God has created you to experience to the fullest. Anger, wrath, and resentment, if those things are not kept in check, they will very easily lead to bitterness, and bitterness will inevitably lead you straight to sin. And so Jesus is essentially saying, kill that tree from the root. You've got to forgive. Wrath, when wrath or unforgiveness is filling our temple. The temple isn't clean. And what we've seen today is that a dirty, corrupt, impure temple does not please God because the space in our hearts that's being devoted to corrupt purposes, holding on to unforgiveness, is supposed to be filled with pure, devoted faith. Don't substitute it with unforgiveness. Don't fill your heart with unforgiveness. You see, the nation of Israel had lost its faith when they refused to forgive the Gentiles, the Romans, who had been like this unmovable mountain for them. Instead of forgiving them, they offered up prayers, thanking God that they are not like them. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. Pride. Instead of forgiving them, they hoped that the Messiah would come in and slaughter them and slaughter them. The kingdom of God is never, never meant to be experienced in isolation. But if there is one thing that will keep someone in isolation, put them into isolation and keep them in isolation from others, it is always unforgiveness. It is unforgiveness. Holding on to bitterness, if that's filling your heart, Holding on to it is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die from it. You know, if there's somebody that I refuse to forgive, they don't care. They don't care, but who's it hurting? It's hurting me. It's hurting whoever's holding on to the unforgiveness. So forgiveness is not optional. It's not just a luxury. It's necessary for our faith to grow. It's necessary for our faith to flourish. It's necessary to experience the type of life that God intended us to live. May we learn to love and forgive in order that our faith will grow and flourish. Because if God can forgive us freely, then we must learn to forgive freely too as we become more and more like him. Let's pray. God, we just confess in our hearts that without your love, without your grace, we would be filthy on the inside. No matter how good we look on the outside, your word reveals that there would be nothing but filth in us. And it's only because of the work of your son that he came in and cleaned out the temples in us that we're presentable to you. And so we thank you for that grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, how deeply your words can penetrate our hearts. God, your ways are better than our ways. You know better than we know. 
And so, Lord, if there's anybody in our hearts right now that we're struggling to forgive, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to release those people. Knowing that it's not hurting that other person as much as it's hurting us. Your plan, Lord, is for us to live a life of blessing, not being cursed. Lord, sometimes we hold on to the curse when we refuse to forgive. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to forgive freely as you forgive freely. Thank you for your word. May it continue to transform us in our walk. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.